Hello and welcome to this Nutmeg podcast, a version of the Scottish football magazine for your ears. I'm Daniel Gray and this time my guest is Val McDermott. Lifelong Wraith Rovers fan Val is a best-selling crime writer. Her novels have been televised, translated into 40 languages and have sold over 15 million copies worldwide. The Nutmeg podcast is sponsored by Orium, Scotland's sports performance centre. It lands every fortnight. Please subscribe and give us some stars. To us, they're like that glorious moment when the ketchup finally pours out of the new bottle. We stand too on the chiseled shoulders of our print offering. Please see nutmegmagazine.co.uk for details. Enough of that. Here's the podcast. I started by asking Val to describe the cacodi she grew up in. Cue tape. Well, it was a very busy industrial town, really. Uh, we had linoleum, which was the central industry in the town. Uh, there were big linoleum factories along the railhead. Uh, there's a poem even written about it, the queer-like smell, because when you arrived at Kirkcaldy Station, what would hit you was a wave of linseed oil. Um, there were other factories as well in the town, linen factory, carpet factory, and there was also Seafield Pit, which was uh, one of the biggest deep mines in the world. Uh, so it was a thriving town, um, but although it, it was a, a, a town of, of industry, it was also a town that lent itself to leisure, because we had the beach on one side, and then behind us we had countryside, and we had two massive parks where there was always things going on at the weekend, there was always a band playing or somebody having a picnic or whatever, and of course we had the football. If you catch a smell anything like that now, do you feel fond? Because smells can be quite a nostalgic thing, even if it wasn't a very nice smell. Yeah, it, it's quite weird because, you know, now linseed oil is this terribly cool hipster thing that people put in their, their smoothie or whatever. And every now and again, you're, you, you walk into some sort of hipster cafe and you get a whiff of linseed oil and I think, where's the linoleum? <laughs> They'd stopped making it for a long time. Uh, they went into vinyl flooring, uh, and then in the mid-1990s, they started making it again. And I was driving along Factory Road, uh, going to the fish and chip shop to get fish and chips for me and my mum for their tea, and my nose went up. I thought, I know that smell. I sort of got home and said to mum, are they making linoleum again? She said, aha, they've started it. Apparently, it's very green. And tell me about your own household in that time. Who was there? Who was in the house? Where was it? It was me and my mum and dad, uh, just the three of us. Uh, we lived up the back of the town at Temple Hall Estate for a while, and then we moved down the town, um, right into the centre of town, in fact, across the road from the main library, which was an absolute boon for me. Uh, my dad worked in the shipyard when I was born. Uh, he later worked for an insurance man, and then he ended up working for the town council. Uh, in the, he was the, the guy who dealt with the hard-to-collect rents. <laughs> um, and uh, it was, it was. I, I mean, I, I think I was. I had a pretty happy childhood. Nobody battered me. Nobody sexually abused me. I had no trauma to draw on as a writer. It's quite difficult, really, in some respects. But Wraith Rovers have made up for that. Aye, quite. <laughs> There's enough pain there. Um, we were not well off. Um, we never. There was never very much money to spare, and certainly. Um, but my parents. Uh, believed in, in making the most of, of their lives, uh, although they never moved away from, uh, never moved further than eight miles from where either of them was born. Uh, they liked to explore Scotland, they liked to explore Fife. Every other Sunday afternoon we'd go out in the car um, and uh, we'd, we'd go. My dad had a habit of taking roads he'd never driven down before just to see where they went, which was mostly interesting but sometimes mildly disastrous. Um, Sounds was, like a metaphor for writing. 
Yes, yes. Um, and we also, we used to sing in the car as well, because um, it was the days before car radios. So we sang all sorts of things from Scottish traditional songs to novelty songs, to anything really that uh, that my mum and dad knew or that I sometimes knew. Um, a lot of Robert Burns as well. Uh, so that was that was us. Um, I I was an only child, as I say, and I was an unexpected child um, because both of my parents had TB uh, when they were younger, and TB seriously compromises your fertility. So they didn't really expect to have a child, so they were married for eight, nine years before I came along. It was I say, quite a surprise to them, really. Wonderful surprise. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> of course, football, enormously important to Kakodi and to Fife. What are your early memories of football? When was the first time you became conscious of Wraith or of, of this game? I don't, I don't really know because I can't, what I can't remember is a time when I wasn't conscious of football because my dad was, was a great fan of the club. He'd, he'd have loved to have been a professional footballer. But when he got TB for him, it was TB in the bone. It was in his leg. And that left him with a weakness that meant the idea of playing professional football was out. He played, he played amateur football for, for quite a while. Um, but the idea of, of that being his, his professional life was, was a goner, really. Um, but he clearly wanted to stay involved with the game. And he had a sort of group of friends, really, who were in, involved with Wraith Rovers. Uh, and so that drew him into the, I suppose, a more formal relationship with the club and he was a, he was a scout for the club in the 50s and the 60s um, and so that meant he'd often be out on a weekend on a, on, a, on a Sunday off watching a football match somewhere in the, the back end of nowhere on some cinder pitch you know with miners and shipyard workers kicking seven bells out of each other um, and sometimes he'd take me with him to get me out from under my mum's feet. Uh, I think I must have been quite a, an, an annoying child in some ways because I was always asking questions. And I, I used to read a lot and, and there were always things that came up in the books that I wanted to talk about. So, you know, I don't imagine there was a lot of peace sometimes when I was around. So my dad would take me with him and we'd, we'd stand about in the cold and, um, you know, sometimes I'd get a bar of chocolate. And in, in the winter time, he, he, he used to keep a plank of wood in the back of the car because you stand by the side of these pitches and the mud, you'd just be sucked into the mud. So we'd have this, this bit of wood that we'd stand on to save ourselves from disappearing into the swamp that surrounded some of these football pitches. And I mean, it was all these sort of places in, in let's say, the backside of Fife, you know, sort of Bullingree and Kiglassie and Hillabeath and places like that. Um, and I, I would end up at these places, you know, with my dad sort of wrapped up in my winter coat. And sometimes he would take me to, to the Rovers on a Saturday. And I can remember uh, being quite small. And they used to have those sort of, you know, U-shaped metals, tubular little barriers that, you know, old guys would lean on, you know, with their flat caps staring at the game going, oh, this is terrible. Uh, and so I can re- the first thing I remember is the sensation of sitting on this cold metal for like the entirety of a match, and then the pie at half time, and biting into Pillin's pie, which is full of gravy, and a gravy would go up your sleeve, and there was that wonderful moment when one arm was warm. So those were the sort of memories that I had. I mean, I don't remember particular players, I don't remember particular games, I just remember the atmosphere um, and the noise in the stadium, uh, and just that whole that world that was completely different from anything else in my life. Did it feel like the whole town was there? Well, you know, I was a small child, you know, 100 people would have felt like the whole town was there. But yeah, it felt it felt like a, a big thing. And certainly, you know, you'd see, you'd be part of that, you'd see people streaming out of the, the ground afterwards. 
as quite often uh, my dad would we'd stay behind a wee while because he'd want to, to have a word with Bert Herdman, the manager or whatever. Um, so I would be sort of left to my own devices to kick my heels and, and watch people leaving and try not to get under people's feet. And he was credited with the discovery of a rather famous Wraith Rovers footballer. Tell well, us about that. And did he ever speak about that? He didn't speak about it, uh, really. Uh, but he was uh, he was scouting for Rovers in the late 1950s and uh, he went to see a team called Crossgates Primrose playing. Uh, and there was a young man there called Jim Baxter, who my father rather liked the look of. And he persuaded him to sign for Wraith Rovers. At the time, Baxter was working down the pit for £3 a week. And my dad said... If you come to the Rovers, we'll give you £6 a week, son. And so the, the, the lure of those riches beyond dreams of avarice was enough to, to bring uh, Slim Jim to Kirkcaldy to play for the Rovers, where he stayed for 18 months before he was snapped up by Rangers and then went on to the stellar career that everybody remembers now. Um, I mean, my dad later said, you know, a blind man could have scouted Jim Baxter. Um, but I, I really didn't know that my dad had this uh, this role in the, the sort of higher firmament of Scottish football until I, I was about 12 or so, and um, the Daily Record was, was serialising Jim Baxter's biography as, as they did on a regular basis. And there was my dad's name in the paper. I said, that, that's you. And he said, aye, it was me. And he said, the blind man could have scouted Jim Baxter, you know. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was his his, uh, his claim to fame, I suppose, in the great uh, great pantheon of Scottish football. He also um, signed Ian Porterfield, who of course went on to score the winning goal for Sunderland in the 1973 Cup final. Uh, my dad said, I think with Porterfield, he said, if you ran past you and you're standing on the touchline, you could hear the beer sloshing in his belly. <laughs> <laughs> My dad was no respecter of persons, a trait I think he thankfully passed on to me to some degree. What was your mum's role in all this at that time? Was she happy to just have you out for a Saturday afternoon so she could put her feet up or probably not, probably do housework? No, well, her and my gran used to go shopping on Saturday afternoon. They used to go down Kirkcaldy High Street, which in those days was a a thriving metropolis, a a thriving retail centre with lots of nice shops and wee shops and interesting shops. So they'd go down the street on a Saturday afternoon. That was was their... They were freed, you know. (laughs) My granddad would stay at home and watch the wrestling on the telly and I'd go off with my dad or I'd stay with my granddad. Um... And then at uh, tea time, I'd have to go and get the, 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 the evening telegraph, the pink edition, so that they could check the scores and results and, and, and have a post-mortem uh, after that. But my mum my mum never went to football. She went to the football once. When her and my dad started going out together, he took her to Alloa to see a game. And she said, it was cold and it was raining, it was miserable. I said, I'm never doing that again, Jim. <laughs> and she never did. <laughs> The next time she went, I think, to Starks Park was uh, when we un- unveiled uh, the McDermott stand. She must. You should have treated her to some gravy to warm her arm up. Then that would have been a romantic thing for Jim to do. You said to me some years ago that you were often remembered more in Kakodi as Jim McDermott's lass rather than Val McDermott, the writer. Is it still true? Yes, it's still true. <laughs> you know, I go into the chip shop and and uh, I go into Valenti's and and I remember not so long ago. Um, well, it was, it was a few years ago, actually, but um, we went to Valenti's, and it was the first time I'd taken Joe to Valenti's, um, so it was probably about five years ago, and um, John Valenti, who owns the shop, uh, called over one of the lassies from the till. He said, you support the Rangers, don't you? And she, you could see she was slightly nervous about admitting to this. She said, uh-huh. 
said, see that woman there? Her dad discovered Jim Baxter. She's <laughs> not, you know, international best-selling cultural icon. Nah, none of that. Her dad discovered Jim Baxter. If you ever need your feet keep you on the ground, you go oh, yeah. back to <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it was it was a great great thing for the club. I mean, Baxter is, is a legend. He's probably the greatest player Scotland ever produced. Um, and to have a very small part in, in that is, is, for anybody who cares about football at all, is a special thing. The history and pedigree is always important to football supporters, even players they've never seen before that their dads have told them about in race case Alex James Willie Penman but there's a story that you and I both absolutely love from the 1920s and that is the great Wraith Rovers shipwreck do regale us with your highlights of that one it's it's, it's a wonderful story I I mean how can you not love a club that have been shipwrecked on their way to a friendly Um, they were going to the Canary Islands to play a series of friendlies I don't know why they were going to the Canary Islands in the 1920s I don't know what the connection was at all but they were on a ship going to the Canaries and they got shipwrecked in the Bay of Biscay. I mean, how fabulous a story is that? And nobody died, nobody was injured. In fact, nobody was injured at all. I think not even mind, nobody was seriously injured. Um, and they made it to shore, and the local people were really nice to them. And and they ended up getting another ship, went off to the Canaries, and played their friendlies, you know, as if this was the kind of thing that happened every day. I keep thinking there's a radio play in there somewhere. Yeah. And the, the ship they were using was bound for Argentina to collect corned beef or yeah. something as well. There are lovely elements to it. I know. They probably have wanted to get it on the way back as well so that they could eat all the corned beef. <laughs> well, talking of the eating, I love Alex James, who went on to play for Preston North End and was an Arsenal great. His account of it, he just moans about olive oil. They keep putting this oil stuff on all the food and I don't like it. It just sounds like every dad abroad, yes. uh, you know, 50 years later with yes. this, this foreign muck. It's garlic bread and stuff like yeah. that. <laughs> I wish that I wish there'd been a romantic element to it almost. I do wish that I do wish one of them had fallen for a Spanish senorita and whisked <laughs> her off back to Kirkcaldy, you know. But uh, didn't it didn't I mean you know obviously if you were going to write it you'd put some other element in the yeah. story to make it a bit more exciting because you know at their best sometimes the boys can be a wee bit dull off the pitch, you know. <laughs> Aye, we went we got shipwrecked in Spain. I. Well, we didn't like the olive oil, but it was fine. We got away to the Canaries quite soon, actually. <laughs> At the end of the day, everything was fine. Aye, it was all right. You know, we had a wee kick about with the locals that were very nice to us. <laughs> you just imagine what it was like, you know. One of the players I remember in his account said that when it, the ship crashed and they were told to, to all get up to, to, to be rescued, he said, being a good Scotsman, I went straight back down and got my wallet, which I really liked as well, even though they were in the pyjamas. <laughs> I know, it's just great. It's a perfect comedy caper, isn't it? It is. I mean, and, and when you think too, that, I mean, in those days, the amount they were paid, there probably wasn't very much in their wallets. No, no, absolutely right. These were not the days of, of mega bucks. Mind you, it's, it's, it's never the days of mega bucks at Wraith no, Rovers. That's true, true enough. So moving on back into your own supporting life, by the 1980s, what were you doing then, uh, career-wise? And describe to me how you found Fife at the time, because, of course, the miners' strike, the difficulties, and the club, a bit of a yo-yo club through that period of the 70s and the 80s. Mm. Well, I wasn't living in Scotland by, by that time. I was living, actually, in, in Manchester for the, the eight, during the 80s. Um, and so I had to keep a, an eye on, on uh, rovers from afar, 
uh, and also really mostly on Fife from afar. Um, I was covering the minor strike, but I was covering it in the north of England, in, in Yorkshire and Lancashire. Um, but I was well aware of the kind of impact that it was having back in Fife. You know, I mean, I had a friend who was the, the head teacher at uh, Kennaway Primary School, and she spoke often of the, the travails of, of her pupils and their families, and you couldn't you couldn't not be aware of it if you had any connection into that sort of background at all. Um, I, but most of my footballing uh, support in those days was uh, I would occasionally get tickets from some of the sports guys for Man United. So Man United became my wee team in the 1980s, <laughs> which was not the glory days, no. but it was still you know it was still a fix of of, of live football, um, and of course a stadium that was a wee bit bigger than Starks Park. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, so, so you were working for which newspaper? I was working for the people. Right, yeah. so working for the people and going to, in the Stratford End or... or well, I went with whatever I got the tickets. I, sometimes I was in the Stratford End, sometimes I was in, in, in the posh seats, but mostly <laughs> mostly I was just among the punters. Um, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was too difficult to get tickets back then, but you know, the, the, so the guys on the sports desk would just chuck a couple of tickets my way and... If I wasn't doing anything on the Saturday, if I wasn't working on the Saturday off, I'd go. Do you think during a, a really difficult time for working class people like the minor strike, football in somewhere like Fife assumes more importance or it's just a distraction? I think it I think it is one of the ways that people feel part of their tribe. And if they're under pressure if they're under pressure economically, if they're under pressure politically, if if things are difficult then this is, in, in some ways, it's it's a place where you can you can feel you belong. Um, you can feel a certain solidarity. There's other people here who are experiencing the same sort of thing that you're experiencing. And certainly it, it works the other way as well. When the team's doing well, the town has a smile on its face. You know, you, you get in a cab when the team's doing well. You know, we've had a couple of successes in recent years, you know, winning the league, winning a cup. And you get in a taxi and people go, so you go and you're going to the football. Oh, they're doing really well. And it, it, it just seems to lift people. Yeah. Um, so I think when, when times are grim, uh, you know, if you can afford to get to the game, it is a, a place where you can feel belonging. Mm. Which is so important and integral to football, isn't it? So take me to the glorious day in 1994, when you won the league cup against Celtic, were you still down? In I was. The of I was England? actually. I was. I was. Uh, I was coming back from uh, doing an event. I think I, I was. I was on the M62 anyway, um, and I was listening to it on the radio. Uh, and you know, got to the, the the penalty shootout, and it was just like <laughs> hands were gripping the steering wheel. Yeah. My life depended on it. And then Paul McStay missed his penalty and I just burst into tears. I had to pull over onto the hard shoulder and I just sat there like so emotional. Um, it, it was it was just, uh, wow, it was one of those great moments that you never imagine is going to happen. You really don't think, if you followed a club like Wraith Rovers, I mean, we've been, it was our first major trophy for heaven's sake in, in over a hundred years of, of club history. You know, we'd won the Fife Cup and stuff like that, but this was our first time we'd got our hands on a proper piece of silverware and it was very, very emotional. And to beat the mighty Celtic. Aye. You know, I mean, nobody gave us a dog's chance going into that game. I mean, we didn't give ourselves a dog's chance. You know, we just had the eternal optimism of football supporters everywhere. Um, but yeah, it was just, I mean, I, oh, I, 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 was, I was blown away by that. Yeah. 
It's brilliant to think what it means to a town like Kakodi because I remember reading accounts of the bus parade afterwards and thousands lining the, the streets and all of that. It just means so much. It does. It does. Um, people identify with the place where they live. They still do, in spite of the fact that we're all supposed to be global citizens now. Um, I think particular Fife still has that very particular identity um, even though, to some degree, the reasons for it have been diminished by, you know, the the building of the bridges across the Tay and the Forth, and you know the ease with which you can now get to Edinburgh, get to Dundee, whatever. Um, but there is still, I think, a, a very distinct identity in the county of Fife, the Kingdom of Fife, I should say. Um, and yeah, we feel different, I think, and and so something that that reinforces that and, and gives you a moment in the sun is just very mm. very exciting. Um, and I was, I mean, I, I was early days at that point from from being from giving up my day job and writing full time, and I didn't. I was I was absolutely skint to be quite honest. So um, it really cheered me up. You know, it was one of those things that you know money can't buy you a good result. By the way, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. you know. Absolutely, and I suppose talking of the importance of football to five, Jimmy Nickel must yeah. have become. An adopted fifer at that point, and oh, promoted I, in the same season as well. Yes, yes. I mean, Jimmy Nickel was was a demigod in Kirkcaldy at the time. Um, I love um, you know his, his comment about when he went to when they went to to play Bayern Munich in the Olympic Stadium at half time. They were one nil up, and Jimmy Nickel said, "At that point, I just stood there looking at the scoreboard, not the match, because I thought my life's never going to get better than this." <laughs> You've often tried in your books to have a little football reference, haven't you? Can you tell mm. me about a few of them because I've enjoyed them. Um, I have. I have um, put bits and pieces of football in. Uh, Karen Pirri is, uh, of course, this comes from Kirkcaldy, so Wraith Rovers does get a semi-regular mention in there. Um, first through Phil Perhatka, now through Jason. Um, so I'll just give that a wee mention. Um, and then in uh, the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan books, I created a, a fictitious premier side called Bradfield Victoria uh, and they, they get I mentioned a few games, Tony goes to the game from time to time and they feature in, in one book where um, somebody blows up one of the stands which was slightly awkward because that was the that, that book came out the summer that Gordon Brown became Prime Minister, and and Gordon of course uh, supports Wraith Rovers and comes along to the game from time to time, and that summer uh, the security forces were checking out Starks Park to see how secure it was and to see where they'd need to put um, their security cover for Gordon when he came to the matches. And, of course, that's when um, this this book comes out with uh, the football stand being blown up. And apparently there was a conversation between the chief executive and the, the, the guy from security service going, so um, this, this, um, this woman who's written this book about blowing up a football stand, she's the one who sits in the director's box with the prime minister... <laughs> the chief executive's going, yes, aha. Uh-huh. Um, she obviously wouldn't do anything like that herself. And the guys were getting like, really well, you know, I mean, she's written about this. It's, it's well, is she, is she like, you know, and then all go like, you know, entire board of Wraith Rovers is going, Val McDermott is not going to blow up the stadium. <laughs> And I'm not. I'm not the only uh, writer who has had occasion to to mention uh, Wraith Rovers. Um, the late great Reginald Hill uh, was a very good friend of mine and uh, pretended to take umbrage that I'd named Tony Hill 
after him. Um, because, of course, Tony Hill famously has some difficulties in the sexual performance department. Um, and so uh, in, in his sort of uh, revenge, I suppose, for this pretend slight, uh, in his next book, he, he said something about a character uh, who was a vet, saying he's, uh, he's very good with, with dumb animals. And he was a Wraith Rovers fan for years. <laughs> so. I like it. Literary revenge. Of course, being at football is supposed to be a time when you can switch off for an hour and a half, pure escapism and all of that. Despite that, have plots or lines ever come to you during a Wraith match? Not specifically. I mean, I think people have tried to write uh, football-based thrillers over the years and they've never really been entirely successful. Paul Gascoigne's agent uh, wrote a couple in the 1980s which were okay, um, but they, they just didn't... They somehow didn't capture the feel of what it is to to be engaged with football. I think, in general, um, crime novels and thrillers set around sporting life don't always work very well. Um, so I think that's kind of militated against it. You've obviously um, not read the works of uh, the manager Steve Bruce and his outstanding cry- murder mysteries, which really do exist. Yes, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I've, I've, I've studiously avoided those. They're hard to get. Yes, they, they, I imagine they are quite hard to get, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, as I say, nobody's really broken out and written the great football thriller. So um, I don't. There's, there's never been, I think, anything specific that's come to me, but occasionally you do hear, you know, cries from the stand. <laughs> you think yeah. I must must find a way to work that one in? Yeah, I suppose you're as likely to get um, non-football thoughts coming into my. There was a cracking episode of Taggart where the referee got murdered at Partick Thistle. I remember that. <laughs> 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 that was a, a beauty. You see, I mean, well, the, the, the trouble with you know the murder of a referee, there'd be just so many suspects. Yeah, you yes. know, um, I mean, usually the cry comes from behind. Should have went to Specsavers, ref. <laughs> So moving on into the 21st century, where we are now, in fact, Reclaim the Rovers, desperate times when it looks like the club might go under with the, dare I say the name Claude and Elka, it's the Beth of Fife, the Beth of Kokodis. Here's a man who couldn't get a drink in a pub in Fife. (laughs) Um, It was was touch and go, I mean it really was, there was was one point um, I remember when um, over the weekend we were told the VAT man was going to close us down on Monday. If we didn't come up with the money, uh, there was a lot of scrabbling about and coppering up at various points. But yeah, it did. Um, it did nearly go to the wall, which would have been tragic, really, uh, for the for the club and for the town um, and for people who had you know been supporting Rovers all their adult lives. Uh, it is a focus, definitely, is a focus for for people who live there. But you know, also, it's it's people enjoy the football. Um, you know, it might not be Real Madrid, it might not be El Clasico, but people enjoy going to the game. They enjoy that that whole 90 minutes investment in something outside themselves. So I think it would have been a terrible loss. And that's pretty much when I got involved. Um, <laughs> there was a phone call one night to the house. I was in the kitchen cooking the tea. Um, and uh, I, I shouted through to my partner. I said, whoever it is, tell them, phone back in, in half an hour. Um, so uh, she came back through the kitchen just, and she was an American so, so, sorry about that uh, but she said um, she said, who was on the phone she said some guy called Gordon Brown I said what the Gordon Brown you know as in the Chancellor of the Exchequer Gordon Brown she said I don't know he just said his name was Gordon Brown and he'd call back <laughs> so I was like okay fine splendid 
And so when Gordon did ring back, he was uh, he was you know basically ringing round anybody that he knew that was from Kirkcaldy or wider Fife who who you know might have a few bobs to spare to put their hands in their pockets to support the Rovers. So he was practicing for the banking crisis. Uh, obviously, yeah. <laughs> I think he did that on pretty much the same basis. You know, rang around a few people that he knew had a couple of billions sitting there. You know, could you uh, help help us out, please? You know. So that's how I, that's how I got uh, I got drawn in to the club in modern times. And between you and the volunteers and the movement in general, general, we've mm-hmm. still got a club today, thankfully. We have, but yes. How important was still shugly. It's always shugly. Yeah. There's always a couple of months during the season where it's like, you know, can we pay the wages this month? Mm. And that's just the nature of, of lower league football and the economics of it and when the money comes in. And there's always those points in the season where there isn't the money coming in. It might just be that you've got three away games in a month, for example. Uh, and, and you're always living hand to mouth. It's it's really tough. People who aren't really involved with football just see the big money end of it. They see the top leagues and the, the, the oceans of money that are washing around there and don't understand that n- really none of that comes down to the lower leagues. So it's always that constant battle to stay afloat. There should be a, a more even distribution of the money that comes into the game, if only to help bring through youth players. People complain that our national sides aren't what they should be. And part of the reason for that is that we haven't got the investment in youth development that you have in other countries. I mean, you look at a country like Iceland. I mean, they've got, like, what, half a million people. And they really invest in their youth development. It's a really big deal there. And, and you know, look, they, they, they managed to, to beat a big team like England. Uh, Thank you for that. Yes, yes, <laughs> sorry about that. But I have to say, I did sign my emails that day, valjacobs.ir. <laughs> Absolutely fair enough. <laughs> but, uh, um, so, so, you know, there's, there's, it's, always, it's always hard in, in the lower leagues just, just to survive. Mm. I mean, so many teams... I mean, I, I doubt you'd find a team in the lower leagues that has not at one time or another diced with death. And so your involvement led, first of all, to the naming of the McDermott stand. Take me back to that day when your mum darkened the door of Starks Park. <laughs> well, she was quite impressed. Um, you know, uh, you know. I, mean, I come from Fife. People are not prone to emotional outbursts. You know, she she stood there on the, on the the sacred turf of, of Starks Park and, and looked up at it and said, "Well, that's very nice, dear." You know, your dad would have liked that. <laughs> and it is the McDermott stand, really. It's it's uh, and there is a plaque in in that end, the stand at that end, about my dad. Um, and so it was it was done for that reason as much as anything yeah. else. Uh, though it has, I mean, I must admit, it does have you know obvious commercial value for me as well, since. As the ground is one of your favourite grounds that you can see from a train. Yes. Um, so people, hundreds, thousands of people every day shoot past Starts Park and see that stand. And as you come in towards Kirkcaldy Station, you can't even really miss it. So uh, from it's that point of view... It's quite surreal. Because when I've been to a game with you, I, I, the novelty of being with someone who has a stand in their name is a tremendous one. <laughs> it's funny. It's, it's, um, you know, I, I almost forget about it sometimes. Now I'll just look up as we're coming to Kirkcaldy. Oh yeah, there it is. Um, and sometimes I miss it, you know. It's like, oh damn, missed it, you know. <laughs> and the shirt sponsorship as well. Yes, uh, I, I sponsor the first team home shirts. Um, I also sponsor the the girls under ten shirt as well. But uh, yes, yeah, so on Saturday afternoons, eleven sweaty guys run about with Val McDermott on their chests. You know, it's um, dream come yeah. true <laughs> <laughs> for them, perhaps. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, and uh, it's actually um, that. 
There is, there is. I mean, apart from the the satisfaction of putting something back into the club, there is genuinely a commercial benefit to me in that. I think as well. Um, I mean, when when I first sponsored the shirts, I got a lot of publicity. Um, there was a lot of stuff in the media, newspapers, online. Uh, I did BBC Breakfast. Uh, I was on Radio Scotland, and the New York Times called. They'd heard about a, a writer sponsoring a football club, and and they were interested in this. So we had this long chat on the phone uh, about the club and about the sponsorship, and then at the end, the guy said something that made me realise that they just don't understand football. He said, "If another club offered you a better deal, would you take it?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> it's just like you've completely not got the point, have you? So, um, yeah, Dunfermline, don't even ask. It says valmcdermott.com, of course, across yeah. the shirts. Have you ever been tempted to have a book cover on the shirt? That would be a novel, <laughs> wouldn't it? You, wouldn't, you couldn't really see it so well, though. I mean, we, we've no, talked, we no. have talked about various various possibilities, yeah. but, but you need to have that impact. I mean, even the pitch-side advertising, because um, my, my publisher very kindly support us with pitch-side advertising. Even that, they've got to be really careful to have something that has an impact because you're looking at it from such a distance, really. And then your involvement with the club extended to joining the board. Was yes. that madness? <laughs> it was. It was a complete moment of madness. Uh, I don't quite know how I got talked into it. Um, I think I must have felt it was some kind of uh, distinction. <laughs> yes. Um, I found it quite difficult. I'm not, I'm not by nature given to administration and management. And I think that no meeting should legally be allowed to last for more than two hours because after two hours you just want to beat your head repeatedly on the table till it bleeds. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't really natural for the boardroom, but I did I did I did my best to to be positive and bring some fresh ideas into the mix, which is not always easy when you're you're always dealing with a very tight budget and the fans don't really understand the financial pressures of the club. You know, they, 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 they always think the board can somehow perform magic. Um, and if you have a season like we've had this season where you, you've had a, a sequence of, of injuries to key players and they're out of the game for a while, you can't just go into your back pocket and, and find another salary, you know, because you're still going to pay the guys when they're injured because they're your employees. You can't just say, like, you've got a bad leg, I'm no paying you this week. You know, so the pressures, again, I think are quite quite substantial. And to be honest, I mean, it was... I really didn't have the time to give it the the attention it deserved. So I stayed for stayed on the board for, what, about three years, I think, and then decided to make a gracious exit. Were you surprised by those impossible finances of running a lower division football club? I will admit that actually when I was in the thick of it, I found it surprising. I'd always kind of subscribed to that fan view that the board were incompetent wankers, you know, and that somehow it just needed a proper hand on the tiller and everything would be fine. And then I realised that in fact, it was not about, you know, you could have the most competent wankers in the world and it would still be a nightmare trying to balance the books, trying to make sense of it, trying to get the thing to work. Did you enjoy working alongside the late, great Turnbull Hutton? Turnbull was heroic. I loved Turnbull. I just loved Turnbull. I have some stories about Turnbull that I, that, that I can't tell in public um, that, that warm the cockles of my heart whenever I think of them. Um, but he was, a great, he was a great man. I, I loved Turnbull. He, was, he, was, he, he 
he essentially was behind the the survival of the club, and some of the some of the things that happened as a result of that have not, in, in the long run, turned out to be entirely without problems. But he did what he did to save the club, and he made a good job of it. And you know, we did have a Turnbull Hutton day on day where we were all standing in the stands, going, "We are all Turnbull Hutton." Uh, he got dogs abuse for it, you know, particularly around the time of the Rangers business and um, when when um, Rangers fans were threatening to burn the club down and, and threaten death threats against their chief executive because he was on the three-man committee that uh, sent them tumbling down the leagues. Um, but it was it was a time of high drama, certainly, and, and Turnbull was, was a guy you wanted on your side. When you go to a game now... Do you feel that buzz when you get off the train and the long walk to the ground? Do you still get a rush of excitement? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's still that. You walk down the streets and there's other people and you sort of nod to people. You don't really know them, but you've seen them a few times and say hello. And then um, we've got our season tickets up the back of the stand. Uh, you know, the, the 1923 stand, uh, the famous dog leg. Uh, and there's bits of the pitch you can't see because there's a pillar in the way. You know, there's the, the, the top right-hand corner. Whatever happens in that corner is dead to us. You know, you're going like, did, that, did they get a corner? Who's, ta- is, is, who's taking that? What happened there? Why is why is that a foul? So, so there's sort of moments of drama and, and mystery as well. So we have a sort of little little bit of mystery in the game as well. It is but it's, charming stand paid yeah. for by the sale of... The aforementioned Alex James, I think, yes, back in the day. That's right. Um, and, and Wooden, which must have worried Gordon Brown security <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and and you know, we've, every season we try and do a hospitality day. You know, we, we bring a gang of assorted friends along, some of whom have never been to a football match in their lives, and we have we have lunch first. And uh, uh, I will say that they put on a really good lunch in the Wraith Suite for the hospitality I've, day. I have experienced and enjoyed very it reasonable you. prices. Uh, good lunch, few drinks. Uh, watch the game, and and somehow we all always all seem to end up stopping back to Edinburgh. Find ourselves in a hostelry in Edinburgh and finish the day with a few scoops. It's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, I found myself last time standing at midnight on a street corner with four professors eating a fish supper. <laughs> I'd made a tactical exit by then. I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tactical withdrawal. <laughs> yeah, but it's good, I and mean, then you get and, and it is something. It is, a, it is a thing where you can you can take a bunch of people for a nice day out, mm. you know. Um, we've got we've we've got friends who you know like say well when when's the next one when when can we come again you can say you can come any time you know you can go any time you know it's not up to me yeah let's let's hope more that's one of my hopes for football that as more people become disillusioned with the moneyed game at the top or particularly yeah. in England anyway that they drift downwards and rediscover that authenticity yeah. and love that you can find in places like Stokes yeah. Park so to wrap up are you stuck with Rovers for life oh why. I'm rovers till I die. You know, you can't just switch your allegiance like that. I mean, you can you can have a, a place in your heart for a wee team, or maybe a couple of wee teams. You know, um, but no, I'm rovers, rovers through and through. Um, and you know, I'll I'll take I'll take that I'll take the pain uh, for the occasional moment of joy. You know, and I guess you'll always remain glad that you dad took you to football and stood you on a plank all those years ago. Absolutely, although my partner does sometimes mutter when we're sitting there in the in the stand and the wind's blowing the rain into our faces and it's a freezing cold January afternoon and she goes, how could your dad not have scouted for Barcelona? <laughs> <laughs>